Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Our Sunday supplement extra this week is with the novelist Robert Harris. I'm talking to him about the V2 weapons and the end of the Second World War. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. Robert, in the seemingly endless amount of stuff that keeps being written about the Second World War, I, I notice there are two sort of nagging obsessions that people keep coming back to. One, and we might come back to this at the end, is the, the counterfactuals, the contingencies of 1940, the way in which the start of the war, particularly those five days in May, things, you know, the whole of 20th century history could have been different. The other, and it really connects to your, your thrilling new book, is why do the Germans keep fighting? There's a kind of nagging obsession with 1944 and 1945 and the way that that war machine just kept going past the point where it made any sense and the destruction just becomes so mindless and relentless. And this book about the V2, it taps into that. Lots of other things going on too. It's just a very exciting thriller. But these rockets... What were they for? I mean, in the mind, and, and it depends who we're talking about—the people who built them, the people, the, the regime that used them. What do you think they were for in the minds of the people who fired them? Well, in the minds of the engineers who built them, there's no doubt that um, originally they were motivated by a desire to explore space. But uh, such a project, as we saw with NASA, uh, requires the resources of a state. Um, a militarised state. Really. Yes, and so this astonishing statistic that the Germans actually spent more developing the V-weapons than the Americans spent developing the atomic bomb. So enormous resources were poured into it, but there's no doubt that originally the scientists, I think almost all of them, were, were interested in space exploration. Then when the war began, obviously they switched to far more concentrated work on a, developing a weapon. The men who fired it... The army, obviously, they were landed with it, effectively, by the, by the high command. I think a lot of them in the military were very sceptical about uh, the V2 as a war-winning weapon. But for, but for Hitler, who really pressed the switch for mass manufacture just after Stalingrad, it was clearly a last gamble. That I mean, I think he was always believed in providence and things turning up and he had destiny. And I think that when von Braun showed him the silent movie of the first successful test flight of the V2, he seems to have grasped it as, as a possible way out of losing the war. In the book, you touch on the ways in which this was. I mean, it was a propaganda weapon, and it was a weapon of terror. It was designed to frighten people who were on the receiving end, and it was designed to inspire the German population to believe, as you say, that some, it looks like it's a hopeless cause. It's not. And yet... It's a terrifying weapon. It's meant to be an inspiring weapon. And yet, it's relative to some of the other 
incendiary devices of the war, it's not capable of doing that much damage. I mean, it's terrible when if you're on the receiving end of it, but it's implausible as a war-winning machine. It is. I mean, on a simple matter of mathematics, you think that they were, you would have imagined that they would have worked this out, as the characters say in the novel. The V2 delivers a one-ton explosive warhead, and a Lancaster bomber carries six tons of high explosives. And the cost of it, I think it was over 100 Reichsmarks per launch, it was hugely expensive. It was unstoppable, of course. There was never any means found of jamming it because it, it flew ballistically. And it did so terror. There's no doubt, I think if you look at contemporary reports, that people exhausted after four or five years of war, they found this thing that you couldn't even hear it come in. You couldn't see it with the naked eye because it struck at over twice the speed of sound. It spread terror and it, the bangs were heard across London. So it did remind me of the terrorist attacks. You know, if you have a, a lone knife man, there's certainly tension in, in London after that's happened. Imagine that happening seven or eight times a day. And one shouldn't underestimate the damage that a V2 could do. It is said that 600,000 buildings were damaged in some way or destroyed by the V2, and that this was a contributory factor to the post-war housing shortage. Because it hits so hard, it could damage buildings within a radius of a quarter of a mile. There's a little bit where you talk about the V1 and the V2, and each of them was terrifying in a different way. The V1, you could hear it coming, and then it cut out. The V2 was like something that came from nowhere. That was the terror of it. It was the silence that was the terror. Yes, the V1, you could hear it, you could quite often see it, and then it would the engine would cut out and begin to fall, and you had half a minute or whatever to try and take cover. No such chance with the V2. And I think that it was a futuristic sort of, well, literally a space-age weapon from an opponent, an enemy we thought was defeated. It shook people up. Someone said, you wondered what else Hitler had up his sleeve if he could do this at this stage of the war. So it, it definitely had an effect on morale. And the problem was faced by the British government that there was nothing they could do. And at any time, one of these could have hit the Houses of Parliament, Buckingham Palace, Number 10 Downing Street. One did airburst over the Houses of Parliament, in fact. So, that you know, you were living on edge, especially perhaps if you were in the government heart of London. You have, and I assume it's, it's almost literal propaganda from the Nazi regime claiming that these weapons had done indeed that, you know, trying to persuade the German population that London was effectively in ruins, Piccadilly Circus, Trafalgar Square, Buckingham Palace had all been hit. We know it's not true, but and it's not particularly plausible because they weren't accurate. I mean, they just were going to land somewhere in the middle of London, but it's not completely implausible. No, no, not at all. I mean, they fired 1,300 ballistic missiles at London, and most of them got through. But as you say, they were targeted on Charing Cross Station, which was the notional dead heart of London, and they thought that anything within five miles of Charing Cross would count as uh, being on target. It was our good fortune that most of them did not do much damage. Of course, when they did hit a, a populated area, the loss of life was substantial. The, the biggest was on the 25th of November, 1944, where it hit the Woolworths in uh, New Cross Road, and that killed 160 people. And right at the end of the war, on the last day that they were able to fire V2s, at the end of March, 
the 27th of March 1945, another 134 people were killed in Stepney. So, you know, the British never found an answer to it. They were never able to stop it. Only when the Germans were forced to evacuate from the Lorsch sites on the Dutch coast was the menace finally removed. And yet when you compare it to what we were doing, the firebombing of German cities, the scale of that kind of destruction, it made me think of, I don't know if you've heard them, but Malcolm Gladwell has just done a series of podcasts about uh, the history of Napalm and Curtis LeMay. And it begins with him in Harvard, where Napalm was invented, in the Harvard Library, looking at all of these books about the the great weapons of war, the atomic bombs, the the V2s, the, the big, shiny, terribly destructive weapons. But Napalm was the destructive weapon of the Second World War, firebombing, globules of flame that attached to buildings, causing destruction on a scale that makes this, terrible though this is, terrifying though this is, seem like child's play. We were doing something... And ours wasn't a propaganda, well, it it wasn't a propaganda effort. Ours was simply destruction on an industrial scale to win the war. That was going on simultaneously. I felt almost embarrassed writing the novel describing the destruction in London and the loss of life, because terrible though it is to think of these familiar streets and these familiar stores being blown up, it's as nothing compared to what we were doing to German cities. And I would imagine in Germany, where the book is due to come out, later in the year, there will be quite a few people who will say, well, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, no, on, on the scale of loss of life, there's, there's simply no comparison at all. I, I mean, the the V2 killed 2,700 people in England and injured 6,500, killed 1,700 in Antwerp and wounded 4,500. That's against millions that were killed in German cities. It does go to your point about actual... I mean all of this is a form of actual terrorism, that terrorism is about symbolism, partly. And these rockets, I mean, they look, you know, I've seen the one, there's one in the Imperial War Museum, isn't there? Um, yes. They're huge. I mean, they yes. are. And they are, they look like a child's drawing of a rocket. They were 46 feet long. They were 12 and a half tons in weight when they took off, fully fueled. They still weighed four and a half to five tons when they hit at over 2,000 miles an hour. And the first thing you would feel if you were on the ground, if you were lucky enough to survive, and survivors describe a feeling as if suddenly the air momentarily is sucked away and then the, the missile strikes, then you hear the sonic boom, then the noise of the explosion, and then only finally the noise of the incoming rocket. So, you know, you can imagine the sense of dread which spread around London because of this. So, yes, it was a, it was a terror weapon and, I, and the Germans pushed it as a retaliatory vengeance weapon. That was definitely part of the appeal of it, and it was supposed to have a psychological effect on London. Whether even if Hitler had achieved his aim of firing 10,000 of them, it would have had an effect on the outcome of war is highly doubtful, I think. It's also, I didn't know this until I read your book, the the speed of it. I mean, in the context of the Second World War, a weapon where from launch to destruction, we're talking just a matter of minutes, does feel space age. I mean, it does feel the firebombing, the difficulties of bombing using airplanes and whether you go during the day so you can see what you're dropping your bombs on or you go at night where you're safer but you have less discretion, the number of hours it takes to get there, get back. And this, we're talking five minutes. And that that bit of it feels, that's the bit where you feel you've stepped out of the Second World War and you have entered the space age. Yes, this is what appealed to me, I think, about writing 
the novel. I mean, the novel has three characters, essentially, a German engineer, a British woman who's sent out to try countermeasures, and the rocket itself, because the rocket, I find it extraordinary. It hit London within five minutes. It went 60 miles high into low space. It travelled at 3,500 miles at its peak speed. And I just happened to see yesterday, someone, Adam Toos, I think, posted on Twitter in October 1946, after the because the Americans captured 100 V2s and took them back to White Sands in New Mexico. They fired one in October 1946, and it gives us the first ever picture of the curvature of the Earth. If you didn't fire the missile at London, if you just let it go straight up, if it didn't tilt, then it would go up about 120 kilometers. So you can really see it's the first image from outer space. And this is a weapon developed by the Nazis from the 1930s onwards. So it is a link between two ages, really. It's a link between the traditional means of fighting conventional war of the Second World War and the warfare that we now know. And Hitler saw this immediately and said, having seen the footage of the first flight, said this will transform war forever. If we'd had this in 1939, no one would have dared stop us. But by the time he got it, it was far too late. Adam Tease is often a guest on this podcast, and we talk to him about economics, and I often suspect he'd rather we were talking to him about rockets. So I'm sorry <laughs> he's not on this one <laughs> next time. So you've written a lot, a lot, not all of your fiction by any means, but a lot of it um, either is explicitly or it touches on counterfactuals in history, you know, the contingencies. And in a second, I want to ask you about the earlier one. But that that broader question, with hindsight, and you mentioned Stalingrad as the point where Hitler gives the go-ahead to this. It's it's almost an act of desperation by then. And there's a lot of debate about what, what was the point at which the war was lost on the German side? Was it even the day that Hitler declared war on the United States? But in this later stage of the war, is there any counterfactual that for you is plausible where once we get past D-Day, this is anything other than the inexorable, terrible death throes of the regime? No, I don't think. I don't think actually. Past uh, November, December, nineteen forty-one. Actually, I really? mean, I think the German front nearly collapsed. Then they managed to hold in place. But I think from that point onwards, it was almost impossible to imagine a, a scenario in which the Germans could win. Their only hope would have been to negotiate a peace, um, but that was never really politically feasible. So it's a, an appalling thought that really the whole thing was just doomed. And of course, the mass murder of the Jews started at around that time. So the whole the German Reich seems to be a kind of death cult, really, pressing on with a war that is essentially utterly unwinnable. And it, I mean, one can't underestimate the psychological element in all this in in a society that is wired really to one man hitler isolated in his military headquarters when when he's shown this rocket it's quite easy to imagine how he would get it out of proportion himself you know he'd risen so far so quickly that he must have believed that kind of fates were favoring him and here now they were presenting him with the possible war-winning weapon it certainly wouldn't have seemed to him that by building more tanks or more planes which he could have done if he hadn't diverted resources to rockets, that that would have made in the end a difference when you're facing military might of Russia and the productive power of America. 
Yeah, and after all, the, these rockets could be targeted at London, but London was no longer where the important decisions were being made. I mean, there's a fantasy element even to that. Oh, yes. Uh, the, the Americans and the Russians are closing in, and you can, he can bomb Antwerp and London as much as he likes. Um, yes, and, and we saw, I mean, the German cities that were flattened, uh, or the centres of them, Hamburg, Berlin itself, the loss of these cities didn't prevent the Germans from continuing to fight on for some years afterwards. So, you know, simply wiping out civilian population centres is not going to win a war. And that's one of the great lessons that has been learned ever since, that that form of terror, though it is terrifying, doesn't win wars. No, and, you know, I think the British secretly must have been quite relieved when the first one hit Chiswick in September 1944, and it was only a one-ton warhead. It wasn't bigger than that. The worst thing for the British, in fact, was the realisation that this thing wasn't going to be launched from some giant you know, Fuhrer Hitler fantasy bunker, which, of course, is what Hitler wanted, but far more prosaically, just from the back of uh, trucks and could be launched from woods anywhere. It only needed a platform five feet across to launch it. It was almost impossible to spot it from the air. In fact, the British never did succeed in hitting a, hitting a launcher. That, that, was, that must have been about the worst moment for the British, the realisation that they couldn't, there was nothing they could do to stop it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So I wanted to ask you about, because I've been haunted by it recently, I think I've been haunted like lots of people by it ever since I read it. You've written many books in between, but the first novel that you wrote, Fatherland, another counterfactual. And it begins with this jolting moment. I can still remember reading it and getting the jolt, which is President Kennedy of the United States, this is in the early 1960s, is talking when there was a President Kennedy. But this is not John F. Kennedy. This is his father, Joe Kennedy Sr., Joseph Kennedy, who was not just an appeaser, but in some ways a fascist sympathizer. And I've just been, I've just read the new biography of first of two volumes, so biography of the young JFK, which has a lot in it about Joseph Kennedy. I hadn't been quite aware of a contingency in, in history, which is that there was a brief moment when the people who wanted to challenge Roosevelt on a kind of America first ticket, sort of German sympathizing ticket, when Joe Kennedy Sr. was the uh, American ambassador in London, considered him as a possible rival for the presidency. It doesn't go very far, but it, there's enough of it there that there is a, an alternative path that history takes where he does become president of the United States. And it's a bit like Philip Roth's Plot Against America, the, the counterfactual when Lindbergh becomes president. When you wrote that, that contingency in American history, the, the possibility that there's a fixation, I think I said at the beginning, on what could have happened in those five days in May in London, but the contingencies of American history, including presidential history, are huge. I mean, it's hard to capture it now. It just seems also predestined. 
that was quite contingent too, wasn't it? Yes, I think it was. Incidentally, I did consider opening Fatherland with the Germans landing on the moon, um, <laughs> using the, yeah. with von Braun as director of the German moon yeah. program, uh, because the Americans would not have got to the moon without Hitler pouring so much resources into the V2. They certainly would have got, wouldn't have got there in 1969. You know, I was born in 1957, so I grew up in the shadow of the Second World War. And in my childhood, it was presented in very simplistic terms, the, the war. And really, I wrote Fatherland, and I've been fascinated by the Second World War ever since, because history looks fixed, and it looks as though that was always bound to happen. But it wasn't bound to happen. And I was haunted by the idea that... Stalin, in his way, for a politician, a British politician in the 1930s, seemed a far more frightening prospect than Hitler, who certainly killed more people and was ahead of an ideology which had its tentacles across the world. And when I was growing up, Stalin was still very much Uncle Joe, the pipe-puffing uh, ally from the war. It interested me because, of course, detente was going on and the Americans and the Russians were were trying to uh, get together, the at least to diffuse the Cold War somewhat. And I thought, well, if it, if it had gone the other way, actually, if it had been Hitler who had won the war, would we not have seen a, a similar process of detente between Berlin and Washington sooner or later? Because if Stalin killed as many people as Hitler did, and that was no barrier eventually to negotiating with his successors, wouldn't the same have been true of America and Germany? And it seems to me fanciful to think that Germany could have conquered America. So presumably that if, if Hitler had succeeded in taking the Soviet Union and dominating Western Europe, the world would have settled down into these two blocks and would at some point there have been an, an attempt to negotiate between the two of them. And that was the backdrop to the novel. That was what fascinated me. Would the Holocaust, would the fact of the Holocaust have been an impediment to a future post-war settlement any more than the 10 million, 20 million, or however many it is, were killed by Stalin was an impediment in the end, or indeed the numbers that Mao Zedong and the communist Chinese killed. Those big global questions of uh, geopolitics were what interested me about and inspired me to write the book, really. And then they have a chilling, in a way, connection to now, because so reading about the young Kennedy and his father made me think of fatherland but it also it's really uncanny the extent to which trump is a kind of variant of a joseph kennedy senior presidency so his geopolitical outlook i don't think it has a direct link back but it has an indirect connection to that kind of willingness to not just appease but to deal with the world's bad people the the dictators and others the view that it's all business and it's all just about the bottom line, the racism, the straight out racism of both Joseph Kennedy and Donald Trump, the white nationalism, the America first-ism. The United States of America, amazingly, in 2020, has that kind of president now. I mean, it does yes. my head in, I have to say. It just, <laughs> you know, Joseph Kennedy Sr. is now president of the United States. Yes, you know what I, I, think if you know that, what I mean. I think you're right. And even with a similar, God help us, potential dynastic succession. Yeah. And a willingness to, to buy, buy elections or to win them any which way. I mean, he didn't win it for himself, but he may have done it for his son. Yeah, it's, um, yes, it's mind-blowing. The, the great political story of our time really has been the detachment of the organized blue-collar 
working class from their traditional political home, the Labour Party here, the Democratic Party in America, the uh, SPD in Germany or wherever. So there isn't the bulwark that there used to be on the centre-left against the nationalist right. You know, we're living in an era when the nationalist right is on the march. And of course, not suggesting it's fascist as such, but certainly, you know, history and the history of the Second World War and that whole period now starts to look different. And this is what always fascinates me about history. It's an ever-changing landscape. The further you move, the different play of light on the mountains you've left behind, it all starts to look different. That's one of the things I, I like to try and write about in novels. And it's a, it seems a strange format in which to attempt it. But in another way, it's almost the only format in which you can do it because a novelist has tools at his or her disposal that aren't available to a historian. And that bulwark that you say has gone, and it, it was always fairly fragile, the white nationalist forces in democratic politics, particularly in the United States, have always been there and something needs to block them from power. And Labour, trade union style politics in the United States in the 30s and 40s was one of those things. But there was also an extraordinarily skilled politician in Franklin Roosevelt. It does take political skill to withstand this kind of politics, which is always there. And that, you know, it's easy to say this now always that that politicians of the past seem like they knew what they were doing more than our politicians do now, but they do in a way. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt seems like you need a Roosevelt to withstand this this kind of march of those forces you described. Yeah, you need the global vision. I mean, you know, it would have been domestically much easier for Roosevelt to have pursued an America first policy. But um, around 1940, he clearly saw, looked into the future and decided America simply had to play a, a global role. And he used extraordinary political skill to devise a means of involving America in it. And there's a wonderful passage, I think it's in Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about uh, Roosevelt. I think after the 1940 victory, he went off to relax on a boat for two weeks on holiday. And that was where he came up with the Lend-Lease idea. Why don't we, why don't we circumvent it by uh, loaning things, uh, weapons in return for bases and goods and kind or whatever? And I think that that came out of his own mind. I mean, that is a creative impulse of a sort that you, you, very, very few politicians can think that creatively. So one last question about contemporary British politics. So, almost by chance, I think, you've written about many periods, you've written about Dreyfus and so on, but there's a, you know, two broad themes in, in the sweep of your novels. One is the period around the Second World War and the other, of course, is ancient Rome and the era of Cicero. And we happen now to have a prime minister for whom, I mean, maybe he has a broader historical landscape than this, but those seem to be his two reference points in a way, or maybe the people around him or the people who admire him. That question about whether in some sense, he's Churchillian. Um, I mean, many people think he is, but that at least there is a connection there in the kind of politics he's trying to achieve, or whether this is a, a Roman <laughs> politics. Is, is there any plausibility in any of that for you? Well, he certainly, certainly moved personally uh, by those two periods. He's written about Churchill, and he's obsessed with ancient Rome. And yeah. uh, in fact, two of my three novels about Cicero, he reviewed, and he went twice 
to see the Royal Shakespeare Company's adaptation in the West End. I mean, and he I, went And I went, he went and the obvious, <laughs> the obvious joke's against him, the audience laughs at, so I presume yes, he was chuckling along and, too. Everybody turned to look at him in the middle of the row and he was smiling away. I mean, obviously he sees himself as a Ciceronian or a Caesarian figure or even potentially a Churchill. The, the great difference, of course, is that Churchill, Caesar, Cicero were, were fundamentally very serious people. And I fear that Boris Johnson isn't really a serious person. They were tremendously hard workers, tremendous masters of detail of administration and government. One doesn't feel that he has the same grip. He's the sort of farcical joke, tail-end postscript to history. And in those novels of yours, one of the things that gives the, the thriller element its propulsion is that decisions are real life and death decisions, including political decisions, they are enormously consequential in ancient Rome. You get it wrong. And it's not just you die. Many, many people die during total wars. Political mistakes are catastrophic and and more than catastrophic. And we're now living in a politics where sometimes it feels like we're on the edge of, you know, the wrong political decisions could be absolutely calamitous. And sometimes it feels farcical. It's just... Politics is just this endless round of buffoons making the same mistakes over and over again. This is a yeah. ridiculous question, but which which one are you in? Are we are we in life and death, or are we in buffoon territory? Uh, well, you can be in both. You can, uh, and it's not an either or. The, I know that, that. That's the unfortunate thing. But one thing I do believe, historians in particular, I think do have a tendency. It seems to me to overlook the importance of the personality that a character and chance can change everything. It isn't all about production figures and and social movements. Individuals, if there had been no Hitler, the history of the world would have been totally different. As you say, if Churchill hadn't been around in the summer of 1940, things would have been different. If we hadn't had uh, Roosevelt as president re-elected in 1940, things would have been different. So it does revolve around personalities. And so if you look and one is troubled by the politicians we have, today, uh, we have good reason to be, because these aren't passing phases. You know, there are consequences to flow from the fact that these people are in power now. And yes, one can easily look back at history and see that a casual, almost a casual decision can result in tens of thousands of deaths, or a failure to take a decision indeed can result in tens of thousands of deaths, as we may have seen in this country with the pandemic this year. Robert Harris's new book is out now, and it has the very uncomplicated title, V2. In our regular slot this coming week, we're talking to the philosopher Michael Sandel about inequality and meritocracy and all the things that have gone wrong with American democracy. And that is a lead in to our focus over the next few weeks, which is going to be on the big one, the American presidential election and the future of the world. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. 
You will be timed. <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.